Well, thank you so much, Joe and John, for your ministry to us this morning. Amazing how he had no idea what text I was going to preach on, but picked songs that uh, spoke of it so rightly. Thank you. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider what biblical encouragement looks like in this season of our lives. How are we to be encouraged to endure as the people of God in the midst of losing so much? When we are facing such persecution, how do we stay motivated to be faithful, to endure, to finish the race? We've had our building taken from us. We have loss of fellowship that we normally had within that church facility from its ministries, from its programs, and its Bible studies. There is a loss of fellowship right now from within our homes. Christians who would normally be meeting together without concern or worry or fear. We have suffered the loss of our brother and pastor, James, for a season. And there are some of you who are suffering from job loss, persecution from our government, from the world, from even your own family. And not only us, but other churches who are now losing their buildings just like we have. Other Christians being fined and threatened with jail time. Now we recognize that these situations aren't out of God's sovereign control. If we are suffering loss or persecution, then it's coming directly from God's hand. And it will be ultimately for our good as believers, making us into the image of Jesus Christ. Yet God being full of mercy and grace doesn't leave us to go through these trials, through these persecutions, without any means of encouragement. He doesn't leave us without the means to endure to be faithful to the end. We see in the Bible examples of how authors encouraged those who were being persecuted, those who suffered great loss for their faith. They were told to look ahead to heaven, not to this earth. They were told to look ahead to the return of Jesus Christ, when all things will be brought under his justice under his righteous judgment, and when all things will be made new and right. The author of Hebrews, after discussing how their readers, how they suffered loss, he calls them to endure with a view of the end in mind, with a view of the return of Christ, when all things will be made new and be made right by God. Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. Peter, in his first epistle, encourages those scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are being distressed by various trials to remember their living hope, Jesus Christ, their inheritance, which is reserved for them in heaven, 
and how God protects them with power through their faith, ready to be revealed at the last time, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 5. And in his second epistle, he tells them to look, to look for the coming day of the Lord, to the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, 2 Peter 3, 12 to 13. James, in his epistle, similarly exhorts those to be patient until the coming of the Lord, to strengthen their hearts for Christ's return. James 5, 7 to 8. Paul to the Thessalonians, reminding them to look to the coming return of Christ, even for those that had already died in Christ, that they would be raised when he returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to, the, to 18. If we are to endure, we need the same view, to be looking to the end of the story, to the eternal state, when God himself will bring not just fairness, but justice. And when Satan, the world, your own flesh, they won't be able to tempt you anymore to a place where sin no longer exists, to a place where everything will be made right. We need to be longing for heaven if we are to endure this earthly race. Listen to John MacArthur on this. Quote, Where you see a strong longing for heaven, there is incentive to the highest excellence of Christian character. Why? Because anyone who loves heaven, and anyone who longs for heaven, and anyone who seeks that which is above, and anyone whose heart is in heaven, is one who loves to commune with the living God. One who travels there in meditation, who travels there in devotion, who travels there in prayer, who travels there in study, and that's a purging fellowship. He continues, furthermore, a true and vivid longing for heaven is the truest path, is the truth path to a life of joy. Because if you're really living in heaven, and if all your anticipation is there, and you recognize that that is the greatest desire of your heart, then you can endure absolutely anything in this life and never have your joy affected. What does it matter what happens here in view of heaven's glories? End quote. Heaven will be a glorious reality for the believer and an incredible motivation to endure while you're here. And our text today is a helpful reminder of what lies ahead for those who have sought forgiveness for their sins through the work of Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross as payment for their sins, for those that are the bride of Christ. This is where their future lies. Let's read our text. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. We're going to summarize these four verses with these encouragements. God removes the old. We're going to see that in verse 1. God brings down the new in verse 2. God dwells among his people in verse 3. And God comforts his people in verse 4. If we look to earthly things to comfort us, to encourage us, to endure then we will be greatly frustrated because those things are fading away. If we look for rest here, then we are in danger of missing the eternal rest, Hebrews 4.11. Let's look to heaven, to our final resting place, for the encouragement we need to endure. Let's start by seeing where this text falls in the flow of the book of Revelation. Before we start looking at our verses, we find ourselves right after what is called the great white throne judgment back in chapter 20. Satan has already waged a war against God at the end of the millennial kingdom, and it kind of turned out not to be much of a war, more of an execution, where Satan and his armies are engulfed immediately by fire as they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Satan is then thrown into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the beast are also, and then we have the great white throne judgment. It is a scene where those who did not find their names written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire alongside the devil and death in Hades for eternal punishment, separated from God. After that is where we find ourselves. There is now no other judgments left. The goats have been separated from the sheep, the wheat separated from the tares, and now we can go to verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The reason for the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth is brought on by the disappearance of the first heaven and the first earth. Back in the white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great, a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence, note this, the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This is reminiscent of Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Isaiah 66, 22. The old is gone. And the question can be raised, well, how is the old gone? We see the wording of passing away in our text, but we also see back in Revelation 20, 11, the word fled. It fled away. 
And this brings up the question of, is the old being completely removed so that the new can come in, or is the old being renovated into the new heaven and earth? Either a renovation view or a replacement view. The, re the view of a renovation of the earth is supported by verses such as Romans 8, 19 to 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. This and other verses like it, like Acts 3.21 and Matthew 19, talk about a remaking of the old creation or of its regeneration. This Sorry, we also see that in the Old Testament, the earth is spoken of as eternal, given to Israel as her everlasting possession in Genesis 48.4. And he said to me, Behold, I make you fruitful and numerous, and will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. But if you read other verses, such as Isaiah 34.4, you're going to see more of a replacement view of the earth. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their host will also wither away, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Another important text to this view is 2 Peter 3.7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with the intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Since all of these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in, a holy, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Whatever idea you prefer, the main idea is that the old has to be removed. That the old has to be taken away or changed from what it was. We know that this earth is cursed. It is fallen. The people that inhabit it, being from Adam, are sinful from birth. There is no way that a new and holy city and a new heavens could come down into this earth and inhabit it the way it is. It needs to be redone, removed, to make way for something that is perfect and holy. I do prefer the idea of the replacement view, and not just because I don't want to make my family live through another renovation, but because in the next verse, we see that there is no more sea. 
It's absent from the new creation. The sea is completely gone. And it says, and there is no longer any sea. Why would it mention that if it's mentioning that the earth is being done away with? Well, that's because the sea functions of a reminder of chaos, disorder, or unrest. Isaiah 57.20, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. The sea is always in constant motion. At the shore, out in the middle of it, it's always moving in and out like it cannot rest. We see also in Revelation that nothing good comes from the sea. In Revelation 13, the beast is coming out of the sea. When John is writing this book, he's exiled on an island surrounded by the sea. To the Jewish people, the sea didn't represent anything good. They were fishermen, but they were not seafaring people. And what you'll see is that the water, or the sea, is often referred to in a negative connotation. And now when the text says there is no more sea, it's another way of saying that there is no more evil, no more chaos, and no more fear. As the old is gone, remade, along with it goes fear, chaos, pain. It's gone, taken away from us. And the removal of the old is critical for the bringing in of the new. Because like I said earlier, you can't bring in the new heaven and the new earth with any sin or unclean thing remaining on the earth. God cannot have anything unholy or unclean in his presence. And since we've already seen that all unbelievers have been removed in the white throne judgment, the only thing left for God to do is to change or remove the earth due to its curse, making way for a world that doesn't suffer from the effects of the fall, from the effects of sin. God needs to remove it and does so, so that he can have perfect, perfect life with us, unhindered. We saw that God has removed the old, now let's look to verse 2 where we see that God brings down the new. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. There is a permanent quality of this new city. And note what it is. Holiness. It is a holy city. This new Jerusalem is holy unto the Lord. We also see that the new, the new Jerusalem is not heaven itself, but it comes out of heaven. If you read later in Revelation, you'll see that the heaven doesn't have any measurements, but this city does. Like the epicenter of the new heavens. It is brought into place. And although the name Jerusalem does tie it to the old Jerusalem, which the Bible also calls, calls holy, as in Isaiah 52.1, Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Since John is adding the name new to this new Jerusalem, he recognizes that the old is inferior. They share the name Jerusalem, but that's the only thing they share in likeness. The old city, Jerusalem, on this earth was tainted with sin and disobedience and not fit for a new kingdom. It was not fit for this new heaven. And even at its height, even at its height and prominence, you see that in David's time, when even the king and the temple, and even when Nathan was there, you have the prophet there as well, all existing in this city, there is still so much sin. In this new Jerusalem, we will have a king, a priest, and prophet, all brought together in this new city. But it'll be done perfectly, because it's done through its ruler, Jesus Christ, in a city that is free from sin. What we notice, too, is that this city doesn't require a temple, like the old Jerusalem, because there's no need for sacrifices in this new city. All the inhabitants of this city will be free from sin and their outworkings, and just because it bears the word city, we need to do away with some of the connotations we have with that word. Sometimes when you think of the word city, you can think of all the bad connotations from our earthly cities. The crime, the pollution, the depravity that comes with an overpopulated urban center, homelessness, drug addiction, but not in this city. This is a city built by God. The same city that by faith Abraham was looking for in Hebrews 11, 9 to 10. Turn with me, please. Hebrews 11, 9 to 10. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham left a land he knew to head out to a land he didn't, because God called him out. And by faith, he went out, being obedient to God looking forward to not the promised land of Canaan that they would eventually land in, but Abraham's eyes were always set on the heavenly city, a city not built by earthly hands, a city whose foundations and architect was God. Abraham never settled down for his earthly rest. He was always looking for and had his heart and mind set to his eternal rest. And in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, we see, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is a city not only built, designed, but it is inhabited by God. He will be there. 
This is also the place that Jesus talked about in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where Christ is, we will be. We have a place prepared for us, and it will be with God. We will join Jesus in this place as believers because he is there also. And we should long to be in this place. We should long to be in this holy city. It should have our heart's affections. When you look at Matthew 6, you read, Do not store up, in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you are focused on something, your heart is there. And that is evident because when your heart is there, everything you're doing is for that thing. Think about two young people who want to get married, who've been engaged, right? And they're excited, their hearts are focused on getting married, and because of that, it directs all that they do, all that they care about, all that they talk about, all that they spend time on, all that they spend their money on. It's the goal of getting married. That's where their heart lies. We should have the same heart attitude towards heaven. If we are meditating on heaven, if we are meditating on the eternal state, if we are thinking about it constantly, if it fills our thoughts... That will be all that we're about. All that we do, all that we spend our money on, all that we talk about, all that we direct our steps to do, the work that we lead to storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth. If we have heaven in that place, if our heart is set there, it will automatically give us right desires. Desires to fulfill the Great Commission. Desires to be obedient. Where our heart is, that's where our treasure is. We notice, too, that this city also comes from or, from or out of God. Its originator is God. We alluded, alluded to this back in our earlier Hebrews verse, that God is the architect of it, the builder. I can't think of another person who I would want building my eternal home. I've built a lot of buildings in my time, and I wouldn't even trust myself to build a place that I'm going to live for eternity. God is the greatest architect, free from any flaw. He's using perfect materials, free from any curse or blemish. He cannot produce something that has flaw or blemish, and his city will contain neither of those things. No architect has ever produced a city that's about to be built for us, that we get to inhabit. And as we continue on in our verse, we also see that the city is made ready as a bride adorned 
for her husband. The city is a bride, which causes us to question, I thought the church was the bride. I thought the church was the bride of Christ. I thought God's people were the bride. How could this city be called the bride? Before I answer that, I just I want to look at why God uses the analogy of the marriage when he's talking about his relationship between him and his people. Earlier we see, sorry, in, uh, in the Old Testament, we see that this shows up time and time again. Yahweh is the groom and, Ezra, and Israel is the bride. Such that when Israel sins, she has committed adultery with her husband, God. God is the groom and Israel is his people. In the New Testament, we see this same language being used. We see Paul using husband and wife imagery in Ephesians 5 between Christ and the church. The husband is the head of the wife. Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. We see this marriage imagery quite often. And to paraphrase D.A. Carson, he talks about why it's such a good analogy to use. Because in the vow of marriage, this is the closest in principle and practice we can know somebody. In marriage, the most glorious intimacy can occur between humans and nowhere else. And this is how we are to think of God and our intimacy with God. That we are his bride. When you think about even earthly marriage, when it's being practiced properly, it is warm and pleasurable. There is give and take, and it's based on communication. The marriage picture is a beautiful relationship between two people. And this gets ratcheted up, because now this marriage isn't between two sinful people. Now this marriage is between a redeemed believer, free from sin, given a new body, and with God. How much better will this marriage be when we are without sin and married to God for eternity? How much better will that marriage be when we are united with him in the most intimate way for eternity? We see that in both cases, in the Old and New Testament, the bride is the people of God. So going back to our verse, if the bride is the people of God, how is it that this city is being called his bride? Well, the bride is both the people of God and their city, which they now reside in with him. The bride can be used synonymously with the city, much like how you have people in Edmonton are known as Edmontonians. The city is called what it's made up of. The city, the holy city can be called the bride because the bride is what inhabits that city. Very much like when Peter uses baptism to say that it saves. He doesn't mean that baptism saves you. It's just a reference where he's using it synonymously with salvation. Instead of saying, are you saved, he can ask, are you baptized? Much the same way, when we talk about the bride, we can use it synonymously with the city 
to say the bride is coming or the city is coming because it's full of its people. That's where they'll live. This is why it can be referred to as the bride and as the new Jerusalem, the holy city. We see this use as well in Revelation 21, 9 to 10. The angel takes John and shows him the bride, which is the holy city. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is why it can be used that way. And we will be residents of a new city, a perfect city, and a holy city. And we will be adorned for our groom. God's people will be adorned, made perfect, made perfect for her groom. So that in that most intimate and perfect relationship with Jesus Christ, we are given everything we need to fulfill that bridegroom language that's used throughout the Bible. This is the fulfillment of every time God says that they are my bride, they are my people. This will be the final consummation of that marriage language seen perfectly in this city forever. And again, we see that there was no temple because there's no need of a sacrifice. There is no sin because now there is no separation between God and his people. The betrothal is done, the wedding feast is done, and now the marriage is fully consummated. And even in a physical sense, you will be with God. Even though now we do recognize that believers are united with God, there is still a sense sometimes, even for believers, that God can be far away. That because we can't see him right now, that because he's in his throne room in heaven, that sometimes God can feel far from us. When God is done bringing down the new, God dwells among his people. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is an announcement from the throne about God, but it is not made by God himself. The loudness of this announcement emphasizes the importance of the substance of the announcement. The importance of this announcement needs to be loud because of what it's declaring. And this is an amazing announcement that God is dwelling among men. The word dwelling there also means tabernacle. That God is tabernacling among his people. This harkens back to the Gospel of John in chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. We see this in Ezekiel 37, 27. 
my dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This tabernacling or dwelling alludes back to the tabernacle of the wilderness, back to the tabernacle that God instructed his people to build so that he could be close to them. Sin has always separated man from God. And when you look at redemptive history, what you see is God always trying, not sorry, not trying, but always activating and always planning to be with his people. This tent of meeting that God instructed his people to build allowed God's glory, his Shekinah glory, to reside on the earth. The tabernacle that was set up in the Old Testament is one of the pinnacles of God dwelling among his people. But what we see is that even at its highest heights, there is still a difference between that tabernacling, that dwelling, and the dwelling and tabernacling that we see here in Revelation. In this dwelling, there is absolutely no separation between man and God. At this point, I was tempted to just read all of Hebrews 9 because it's talking about if the tent was the best, if the system of meeting God in a tent behind a curtain where only one person could go behind once a year was the best system, then why was it removed? When you think about the tent, even the nature of it, even its own construction is temporary. They would pack it up and move it. It was never permanent. The tent was always meant to point to something greater, to always point to a greater sacrifice, a greater system to bring man and God together, to remove the separation. We see that man and God have been separated by a mountain, a curtain, by the priesthood of the Levites or Aaron, by the physical barriers of the temple and its proximity to its worshipers. Man has never had direct access to God after the fall. It was always through another person doing the work on their behalf, always through priests. There was always barriers for God's people. And only, like I said, once a year could one man go in and do that atoning work as the high priest. Why is that? Why can't man be in God's presence? Isaiah 6.5 talks about the prophet seeing God and being in his presence. And what does he do? He falls on his face and says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live and dwell among an unclean people. Peter in Luke 5, 1 to 8, when he realizes who Jesus Christ is, when he realizes that he is God, it's the first thing he does. He falls on his face and says, go away from me. Go away because I'm unclean. So how is it that we can be in the same city as God? Because one day, God looked at his son, Jesus Christ, and in the flow of redemptive history, 
said, Go, be born of a virgin, thus fulfilling prophecy. Go be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, which he did, fulfilling the law perfectly in every way, a work we could never do. And then sacrificing himself on the cross through his own volition, climbing up on that cross and bearing all of our sins that we have ever done, am doing, and will ever do. Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, went to the cross to offer the perfect sacrifice, which was himself, an unblemished and spotless lamb, so that your sin can be placed on him, so that the forgiveness can be given to you that he paid for. God the Father pouring out his wrath on his Son, making him pay for the sins of all of his bride through all of ages past and ages to come. Because of that perfect work, all the saints who have come before the cross and all the saints that come after look to that event. They look to it as what purchases their salvation. Our sins are removed completely as far as the east is from the west. Jesus paid it all, removed it all from us, didn't just cover sin. He took it all away. And not only so that we're just saved now, but that is eternally done. Do you realize that everybody who's ever born will live forever? You will either live forever with your sins forgiven. You will either live forever by having repentance and faith and trust in Christ, or you will live forever without that, relying on your own works, relying on your own righteousness. We will live forever. And you will live forever in perfect unity, in the eternal state, in the heavenly city with God when your sins are forgiven. Because your sin is removed, God can now dwell among you. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. Sorry, I think it's chapter 12, verse 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ removes all barriers between man and God through his work on the cross. You don't need a priest. You don't need your own works. The work has been done by the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, offering the ultimate sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. So much so that when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, who is pleased with him, until he returns to bring us home, his bride, to this new heavens and new earth. Jesus Christ removes all the barriers. And if you haven't come to the place where you recognize that your sin separates you from God and that it makes you guilty before God, this is the time. And this is the place. If you're listening to this recording, don't take another second longer. 
Cast yourself onto the feet of the Savior and cry out. Cry out for his forgiveness for your sin. When you repent of your sin and put your trust and faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the separation of you and God is gone because your sin is now removed, paid for. And you are his adopted son and daughter. And you can never be separated from him, and especially when he comes to dwell among his people. There is nothing that will separate us when he comes to dwell with us in the eternal state, in the new heavens, in the new holy Jerusalem. We will never be far from God when he dwells among his people. And just because we can't see him now doesn't mean he's not there. But in the new heavens and the new earth, it won't be like that. If you want to see Christ, he will be right there. You want to see God the Father? It will be through Jesus Christ. There is so much light and glory that illuminates from Christ sitting on the throne in that city that there's no need for a son. When you go to turn around, Christ will be there physically. What we don't have here, we will have there. And that is a great hope. Because what an encouragement that will be as God dwells among us. Because as he's dwelling among us, God will comfort his people. Verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When you're trying to describe something so majestic, something so out of this world, it is oftentimes easier to describe it as what it is not. We see our author doing this. He's using the negative sense to describe things, to say what they aren't. It's kind of like when you're teaching people the Trinity or you're talking about the Trinity. It's almost so much easier to say what it isn't so you can try and understand what it is. Because as soon as you start saying, well, this is what it is, you fall in the danger of putting into a box and having error. Much so with heaven. We are finite humans, and we are accustomed to this fallen and sinful world bound by time. We cannot truly understand how glorious and amazing this new creation will be but thankfully, John takes a shot at it. To quote William Mounts, these new conditions exceed present powers of conception. And even though heaven is beyond our description in words, it is still necessary to think about it, still necessary to desire it, still necessary to think about what it is like. And we see that it begins with and he and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We see that tear here is in the singular. And this shows that God cares about everything to the point of even the smallest thing that would cause a tear to come from our eyes, that he will have compassion on us and remove it. Tear is in the singular because it wraps up everything. Everything. Anything that could cause a tear is gone. 
He will take it away. He will wipe the tear away. That doesn't mean that you're walking around heaven crying all the time. That's not going to happen. John MacArthur said, I don't even know if you'll have tear ducts. But that's what it means. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Anything that could cause us sadness, no matter how small it is, God is concerned. This is how much he loves his bride, that he will take away every tear. In this new and eternal state, there is nothing that will cause a tear to come from our eyes, and God has made it so. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 25.8. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. We saw this already in Revelation 7.17. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there are no more tears. Because there is no more death. And since there is no death, there's no mourning, no crying, no pain. And we do have this reality now for believers, for those who are united with Christ through forgiveness of sin, for those that are his adopted sons and daughters, we do have that reality now, that we don't suffer death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, death is dead. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now on this earth, for believers, we won't know death. There will be a physical death. There are those that are dying and those that will leave this earth through death. But they don't have any fear. Death has lost its sting because even those who have fallen asleep now, they will be with their Lord. They will have a body that will later be resurrected to be given them. They will be given a glorified body. God cares about the body. He doesn't throw it away. He's going to remake it give it back. Death has no victory over us. But what we see in the heavenly city is that even the physical death that believers suffer here is completely removed. There is no more death. In this eternal state, this holy city in the new heavens, there will be no palliative care. No hospitals, no clinics, no doctors, no nurses. There'll be no funeral homes, but only those believers who have eternal life. There'll be no disease, no death, no cancer, no organ failure. There will be no death. And when you think about the pain that even death causes, even here for believers, there's still a loss. There's still a mourning. 
We still experience that. But in the new cities, on the new earth, in the new city, on the new earth, death has been removed, which means there'll be no more mourning, no more pain, and we will be with God, our creator, our sustainer, in personal fellowship. And this will go for eternity. This will last forever. Because the first things have passed away. These things, these tears, this death, this pain, it's passed away. Again, gone, removed by God himself so that for all of eternity we will be united with God in perfect fellowship and in perfect harmony, fulfilling the perfect perfect covenant of marriage with our God. We have seen that God removes the old. God brings down the new. God dwells among his people. And God comforts his people in the eternal state, in the new heavens, on the new earth. And this is the most encouraging thing I can give you to leave this place. My hope will be that you will meditate on this verse when you leave here so that you can go back out into that world, so that you can do what the people of God have been commanded to do, the Great Commission, and you can tell others of this great hope that we have as they are in and amongst this fallen, cursed, and sinful world with no hope. Take this hope to them, that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through his forgiveness, we can have fellowship that is sweet not only here on this earth, but in eternity, for in heaven, forever. All of God's people, for all time, with Christ himself on the throne. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what a mercy and privilege that you, through John, have given us this word, this encouragement of where we will spend eternity. Father, what a blessing it is that we get to meditate on it. Father, bury this truth deep in our hearts so that our hands will do works because of it. Father, be with us as we leave this place so that we will be a, a city on a hill to the world, that we can share this glorious truth with them. Father, thank you for such a time like this, that we can preach your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.